Hi, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. Hey, it's my full name. <laughs> all, back. all three syllables. Thank you. Raphael? Yeah, I never liked uh, the abbreviations of my name. Well, uh, same thing. People call me Jer or Jerm. <laughs> or Germ in the worst cases. <laughs> Jerm the worm. Nice. No one's mm-hmm. ever put that worm worm part on the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you this week? You're going to your cottage. Yeah, it's a you know Canadian kind of thing to do. Um, can can everyone... we mention that type of stuff? Or are we again uh, confirming your privilege? No, of course you can mention that because I think every Canadian, no matter what your background is, knows someone that has a cottage. It's like a there's just a lot of space in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in the summer, it's similar in Norway actually that I was in last month. Uh, that where everyone just kind of goes north in the summer. So yeah. Um, and can you so describe your cottage? On the weekends. Uh, yeah, I can. I mean, this is where things maybe do get um, kind of reveal some of my the, my privileged background, but that's fine. I don't mind. Um, it's like a it's on a private beach, which is not uncommon in Canada. Uh, we have like, especially in Ontario, we have the longest freshwater beaches in the world. So. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a private beach, and then we're like a little island, just like kind of a or more of a peninsula, but sometimes an island, uh, just off the the coast of. That, but that and, beach, and but what's, you can, like, what's the vegetation or what's the the vibe? The vibe is like um, it's it's a very chill vibe. The, the vegetation is like sand cherries, sand like grasses. It's white sand beach, but it's not like coral sand, right? It's like um, it's sand from like granite and you know like the sh- canadian shield and, uh, and but it's like a light colored is it uh, nice to swim or it's pretty cold it's cold like it'll be exceptional if it's warm enough to s- swim today but usually you can swim in july it's just been a cooler july mm-hmm. you can swim in august but it's not i'd never swum in like warm ocean water until i went to costa rica a couple of years ago and that was insane. It was like <laughs> it's a weird. Bath. I was like, because I'm used to just like you know holding my hands in the air and like tiptoeing it's into the water. Just yelling and going, ah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So my first experience with warm water in the ocean, I was a little distressed. Actually, I was. Uh, now I you, also you were like, the, did someone pee in the water? Yeah, and and then I was like, wow, this is fantastic. But I know that there's 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 a problem with that as well, of course, like because um, the coral reefs are dying. Because uh, the oceans are getting too hot, like most of the Earth's energy um, or the extra, you know. Well, that's all the more reason to enjoy it while it's still there. I know, but I, you know, like the next time I walk into the ocean, I won't. Uh, it'll be hard for me to enjoy it. I'll be like, oh. Can you enjoy uh, anything? Me? Yeah. When you when when there's like guilt attached to everything. No, but I enjoy guilt. I'm a Canadian. Oh, so okay. <laughs> okay. I'm just like enjoy. No, I thought that suffering. was one of the biggest challenges of the of the woke left world is that um, you you're always fighting for something, and it's really hard to be like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this chocolate. No, mm, actually, chocolate. Don't t- the chocolate farmers. I'm sure there's a lot of th- <laughs> trouble tied to that. It's like, okay, I'll enjoy Netflix. No, you, the investors for Netflix also invest in weapons. Okay, I'll enjoy. It. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they do that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I mean I enjoy the complexities of the world. Actually, like I actually, uh, that's one of the I think contradictions that I enjoy uh, the intersections the, and problems, and I enjoy uncovering those. And then I enjoy do you, most, do you like, enjoy thinking. guilt tripping other people? 
No, no, but I, I do laugh about that. I was, I was laughing about that the other day uh, at work. I was like, we can do this politically correct thing, and then we'd laugh at everyone. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> but uh, as, yeah, the, the, we were watching this cartoon called The Good Family. It's a Mike Judge who also did Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. And mm-hmm. King of the Hill was kind of about middle America, about the America that the entertainment world usually doesn't address. Mm-hmm. And then this other show, The Good Family, is about an extremely politically correct family, and you see how difficult their life is. They're like, <laughs> do I get the sustainable one or the pro worker one? And at the supermarket, and they have a crisis about it. And uh, mm. do I care about workers' rights or about ecology? And, uh, well, I think that that just would highlight that it's like really hard to make ethical decisions yeah. in a non in a, in a world that's not organized to help you do that. But imagine, like, as a designer, I would just look at that as a problem that could t- typically that could be solved, maybe, or m- maybe it would be really hard to solve. Yeah. It. Maybe you'd solve it poorly. And I, in my artwork, I make fun of that, right? Like, I'm always trying to solve these big problems in a you know the solution first attitude like sometimes we just have to accept that there are problems but ignoring that there are problems i think is is worse but i I think it's actually not a bad segue into what you said you wanted to talk about uh this week we need a segue um, sound mix in like the sound of a tornado or something or the sound of an actual or a sound of a segue going by like tourists and like oh yeah (laughs) 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 Uh, but I think the segue is, you want to talk about uh, scale. Yeah. Uh, when I think of scale, I also think of growth. But um, in the startup world, scale has bit long been sort of like associated with a lot of the, well, a lot of the success of the industry, but also I think with uh, recently, especially but also it, 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 the transgressions, yeah. social transgressions. I'm, I'm interested in scale as a, f- as a form of measuring things. And it's actually a pretty dumb way of measuring things. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's very human to rank things and to think who's who's the alpha chimp and and who's the the who's mm. doing better than the other but mm-hmm. and i think it's very primal wanting to know who's best who who's faster at running who's faster at business measuring each other's salaries or measuring each other's cars or whatever you mm. want to measure but they're actually really irrelevant to most people the, the the things we measure mm. It's interesting you say that. Just a uh, like flashback to yesterday um, in a meeting where I'm really lobbying in my own company for us to capture um, sort of inclusivity data or diversity data, depending on the the word that you prefer. Which and which is like making sure that we track <clears throat> happiness and satisfaction according to your demographic. <clears throat> but this there's a company that's trying to make create a benchmark for like the most socially progressive companies. Um, and so, so that they can measure themselves against one another on that yeah. uh, measure, mm. that measurement, right? And often, though, I think like I've had this debate several times before in the past. Like, it's the scales, the, the things that we measure ourselves against that create a lot of the problems in the first place, uh, because the measurements are often like, uh, like let's take the Fortune 500, right? Yeah, um, which is like it's by market know, a, cap or revenue, or how do they measure? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. Um, Fortune 500, I believe, is by revenue, but it could be by uh, market valuation. Um, well, I guess it doesn't matter which it is. Either but way, it, it's, rel- it, I mean, it's also, related to economic yeah. value. Yeah, but measuring uh, um, uh, diversity For the revenue. Or, or whatever you yeah. want to call it gets really tricky because Pinterest would have a really high score because it was one of the 
the first web services that was adopted more by women than by men. But then right. uh, yeah. you could also say that's confirming uh, a sort of gender stereotypes when you're young. Oh, you're a girl, you have to gather pretty stuff and look at dresses and, and jewelry. Mm. And so, so that's, so that's has, has a negative about. connotation as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, I'm not talking about that bench, the benchmark of your users. Like, uh, I'm talking about internally. And, you know, of course, Uber went through this scandal of like a chauvinist but, culture, right? So, <laughs> so one of the ways companies are trying to resolve that is by just even measuring how chauvinist is your culture. Let me put it that way. That's what they're measuring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things they're measuring or how racist is your culture. And um, I think it's just, it's really interesting that that's becoming a key measurement. I was talking to someone yesterday that was like advocating to be hired as a chief diversity officer. And I was like, whoa, that's like a really. And you immediately said, I want that job. (laughs) I was like, yeah. No, no, I'm the best at this job. (laughs) And you got really competitive. Look at my resume. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, I thought that was interesting and, and that this is an evolving role in Silicon Valley. Well, actually, we have to keep inventing new professions, that's for sure. Hmm. Well, I've been, no, I, what I said to this person is like, I'm lobbying for a chief creative officer because that was the last like new uh, job in, in tech, right? Like the design had legitimate value, mm-hmm. right? So like business started where there was only kind of one value, which was but, like, how much money can you steal from people? And then it was the like, thing that, it's evolved over time. The thing that bothers me about this as a, maybe as, as a European is that we're trying to look at companies to solve social issues and mm, instead of governments. Yeah. And I think if you have a layer above companies, saying thinking about laws on ecology or diversity it's not up to the cool companies to sh- to lead the way it's just okay everybody this is the cap for co2 or this is the cap and then even if you're an asshole company you yeah. still have to adhere to those rules and you're not going to you, you legally yeah so i don't even know if european countries are doing enough but no, and it, I, and it, it seems that if you have a law that everybody has to adhere to then yeah, and I think it's created a certain political crisis, especially in America, where like, you know, Evgeny Morozov, <clears throat> you're probably our, but, uh, our, how are we our going? favorite socialist. Yeah, this becomes well, I was just going to say, like, he believed, you know, he, he wrote this book about, you know, solutionism, which is this idea that, you know, as people now, we've invested so much in the belief that corporate America can solve all of our problems that we've forgotten that you know, we can solve our own problems, right? Like, and governments can solve problems. Well, too. yeah, and maybe a bit even more like it's not the people that should solve it's not the people who should recycle it's the law mm. that should force people to recycle but it, it, I don't want to okay, draw lines but, but in the sand on political but, opinions but no but I think it's an interesting segue to some news this week which is like um, you know Twitter had flat user growth as an example right yeah so well that, it, no, yeah it's very interesting to me that we think of Twitter and its success by number of users and why is that an interesting thing to measure but also remember early on, Twitter was celebrated as this social platform for like social good. Like the Arab Spring was like launched well, on Twitter I th- I think in that we, mythology. I think that myth is over. Uh, but I think that was, yeah, that was a time in which we ascribed um, social like progress to new tech coming along. Yeah. And, and you know, people were saying like the Arab Spring would have been, wouldn't have been possible without Twitter, which is, you know, patently incorrect. I'm sure that there could have been social revolution in fact there were for thousands of years without twitter right yeah. and, um, but the the and, any investor when they're looking at startups so all startups want to do is grow or do you know any startups that are like 
we just want thousand of the best users. We don't care about having a million. Yeah, so this is like, like something that I thought would be interesting to talk about. Because, and, and maybe um, Apple is an example where they don't have the biggest market share of phones, but they have the biggest profit share. So they care more about getting mm-hmm. uh, expensive users than getting a lot of users. Yeah, and so yeah, your customer segment matters. And Apple also famously has a much different methodology for developing products, which is old school. It's considered old school now, which is to perfect the product in-house before releasing it to the public. Whereas companies like Google have long promoted this kind of incremental, uh, agile attitude towards software development, where you release as much as you have as release soon as early, it's ready. Release early, release often. Yeah, release early, release often. And even if it's broken or almost broken, like kind of put it out anyway and see what happens. Like, you know, run fast and break things, as as they said um, previously. Or was that Facebook that said that? I always get the two confused. But um, I think Twitter not having growth uh, is interesting. But in tech, this is becoming like actually quite a... Well, uh, like a, It's like a new movement. Uh, and my company was recently written up for being like a a sustainable kind of growth company. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about it previously, companies like Kickstarter having this sort of like a yeah. B Corp status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for, um, for, to me, Twitter is a perfect example of a company that because they went public, I don't know the exact details. But, but this imagine is my, if Twitter my, came out tomorrow and said, we're going to be the social network that that's more about like social, you know, ethics no, and, I, and quality. I, I, you're, you're always with the social. You've got to take it easy. I think they should... got to take it easy. <laughs> I think they should be with the nerdy social network, not the social. Uh, so they're okay, utility. Yeah. And they should have been like, all the other social networks do everything. So Tumblr shows videos. Tumblr shows GIFs. Tumblr shows mm-hmm. text and Facebook does the same thing and Instagram is starting to be the same thing. Everybody does everything and we're like, no, we're just 140 characters. Even the links count to the 140 characters. The way it, it and I'm always for simplicity and then they add on features to be inclusive. So mm-hmm. that would be an argument against being social. And just say, right. we're, we're just there for nerds. We're a pipeline of uh, showing updated information and you remember they famously canceled all third-party clients or as much as possible. Yeah, which I think was the stupidest thing. Yeah, but did. instead they could have been, we're a protocol and it's just for really short bursts of information. So we don't have to include video. We don't mm-hmm. have to include uh, everything and try to be Facebook. And we don't have to be a TV channel. We're just for short bursts of information, but we'll be the best at that. We'll just focus on that and be amazing at that. It'll be super fast. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it, then they just become a utility. That's yeah. what they'd argue. They're, they'd create no value. And in startup yeah, but culture, the, but, too... but that's the interesting question to me. Like, I'm sure they could figure out a way to survive. It's just once you go public, there's like, we need 40% growth every three days, and you better make it happen. <laughs> yeah, and they haven't had growth in, I think, like four or five. Yeah, maybe but my, my argument is, is if they were a really good bare bones Twitter and they just stayed that way, what, what would have happened? Because everything well, is th- based on growth, so I'm, I'm curious what thing, would happen. You're assuming that they've failed already, which is like the argument I, that, that's starting to emerge. No, they failed really in my eye that they became too much like Facebook. They included all types of media, where if it was just 140 characters, plain text, no images, yeah. no bullshit. But I'm just saying that they still make $500 million in revenue a year. Like they, yeah, 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 but they do that now beca- because they added all those features so that it's more visual and then you can have more advertising. But, no, but if they had stayed fl- as nerdy as yeah. they were, they, I mean, that's hypothetical, but what do you think? Right. 
Well, they would be Mastodon, which is the uh, like open source version of Twitter, something like that. Yeah, and but they're probably numbered, flat user growth. They came in later, so that's not as interesting. They, but it, like with with social networks, like the value to the user is incumbent on the density of the network, right? Like you've always heard the value of a network is is yeah, but that's again, if you look at the value of of, uh, of Apple, that's far fewer people than Android. But that, but that it's doesn't not mean a social it's, network. It is with social. iMessage. Uh, yeah, but you wouldn't use iMessage if no one had an Apple, pro- you know, uh, iPhone. I know, but what I'm saying is, it's not just the number of users. But if if Twitter had been the bare bones nerdy network, which mm-hmm. Mastodon is trying to, but they'll fail because Twitter already exists. Mm-hmm. But if they had stayed a plain text network, maybe they would have been the developer community's choice of bringing yeah. out news and and like almost like a news ticker for other news organizations. Yeah. Like an old school plain text a pre-computer news ticker, almost like a telegram. <laughs> you know? You're describing a horrible product. No, I know I know what you're saying, but you know like I also think, you know, our own podcast suffers from the potentially the same line of thinking, which is like you know, spe- like specializing is in- super important. In- but in Silicon Valley there are two hypotheses that drive every company. There's like a value hypothesis and a growth hypothesis. So the first thing you need to nail is the value hypothesis, which is will somebody, does somebody need this and will they use it? Yeah. yeah. And and will they pay for it, hopefully, right? Which is what Twitter has two customers and one is the user that is you and I and the other is the ad buyer. Um, Yeah, they sell the fire hose, right? That's the term they use. So their value hypothesis is actually relative to one customer and their growth hypothesis is relative to another customer. The growth hypothesis is tied to you and the I, which is like, how will we grow? How often will we use it? Will we tell our friends about it? Yeah, and yeah, there are actually only a few ways. Uh, there are only a few growth hypotheses. It's actually one of the few things where there's not very much creativity maybe, involved. <laughs> maybe dig is an example of a, a thing that stayed pure and failed. Um, or did they fail because they started messing with the product? Well, yeah, like I was, a, I was a dig user, but then or I delicious, think, maybe no delicious. I mean, sorry. Uh, oh, but dig is a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, dig was replaced by Reddit. Probably is like it's more of a community shift. Yeah, but. Um, the idea of like links and lists of links doesn't make sense in an aggregate world where you can Google anything or Facebook mm-hmm. will toss up the latest. Yeah, so adding uh, features wouldn't friends. have saved it. Well, it's just that like Alta Vista doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. It's been disrupted by a new technology, right? Mm. Um, like imagine like combing through Yahoo search, you know, it would just be it. Insane. You wouldn't go through a directory on Alta Vista or Yahoo like you used to in the yeah. past. Can can I intersect as usual? Um, we were talking about saying things on the podcast and feeling liable, and then I looked up this video of Elon Musk where they interview him. He's he just became a billionaire and he gets his F one McLaren and he's a super douche. <laughs> um, and we were thinking about how. You might say stuff on the podcast that 20 years later is really embarrassing, but mm-hmm. so be it. But um, where was I going with this? I, I guess I'll come up with it later. But something about scale. We'll, we'll come up with it later. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the... What I wanted to start to argue is, like, who cares? So when we were talking about, you know, scales relative to the measurement, like, uh, or the, you know, there's a certain ethic and all of that, like... Uh, if Twitter didn't grow, the only people that care, like the the way we're we're saying Twitter's a failure, and we're saying it's a failure, 
<clears throat> not because... I'm not saying that. Well, I'm saying that because they made the product too diverse. But let's talk about the value hypothesis. For me, it's great. Like, for you, it's great, right? Like, yeah. the only reason you anyone's talking about it not being great is because more people don't think that. Because um, people... But that's a, a, a lot of people will just say, I can update my Facebook. Why would I need Twitter? Mm-hmm. But imagine that it was able to be... You know, because in search of growth, it might actually ruin the product for the core audience. Yeah, and this is like a, this yeah, is like and, a fundamental and, and maybe thing. Twitter versus Facebook is a great example where if your grandma is on Facebook, then you're like, well, maybe I'll go hang out at Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so no I would say like grandmas out there, but sometimes you want to talk to your friends. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, I'm I'm on my mother's on Twitter as well as Facebook. I put her on all of the platforms, but but like, which ones does she <laughs> actually use? Um. She primarily prefers Facebook for some reason. Yeah. Um, I think because it's just like easier for her. But I would say like I prefer Twitter vastly over every other platform Twitter, maybe except Instagram. Twitter's kind of for geeks and celebrities. Yeah, what I also like about it is it's like it it's like no one cares. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. You can say something stupid and no one will hear it anyway. Yeah, or even if you yeah, even if I was just to say like type I'll type it right now like burp and then like period like yeah. there's going to be probably 10 likes for that and like zero comments uh, the, the, the thing <laughs> like I was, goes on yeah the thing I was talking about in the Elon Musk video is that they asked him about what how do you make a successful company mm-hmm. and he says well it's pretty simple you get a, a group of people together to work on something that is useful to certain people mm-hmm. and hopefully to a lot of people so make something yeah. that people need and that's then right. I thought that's the that's interesting because that's the exact opposite of art. In art, mm. you don't get a group of people together usually. It's one person, and then that person making something that is not even useful to the person who's making it, and probably not useful to anyone. It, it's just being as far away from useful. So I thought that's, for me, is I think there's been large debates about what is art. and uh, um, But for me, when you're as far as possible from practicalities and, and being uh, of use to a large group of people well I mean the only thing I'll say is um, that I don't think uh, art is useless I think it, it provides a function that's just non it that's not like a pragmatic no uh, to, to me function. even even when art starts to become successful it already loses something so it, it it's really but when it's it, when it's really uh, when you're really testing the limits and it's like nobody understands it and nobody has it's like what what the uh, this is so uninteresting that, that to me is a mm-hmm. uh, good area to be if you, if you really care about like, but a value hypothesis is really not based on um, whether someone finds utility it's whether they want to do X or want to consume X and so it's built around desire uh, in a lot of ways yeah. so uh, which a, you, which know, you can lot, also uh, trigger with marketing, even if they don't need the product. Well, yeah, but I just think because you know you're opening up the debate on the flip side, which is like something like if you're using Twitter, there, it doesn't really necessarily solve a problem for you, other than potentially the well, it's, need it's to marketing s- for people and and well, like letting things letting the ne- news flow. Well, the need to self-express and connect with others, right? Yeah, so and the, and the news to, con- to be updated. Sure. Yeah. So, but the thing about art is, it could be like the need to be um, intellectually stimulated. It could be the need to yeah, uh, but for a very very small group. Yeah, but why can't well? I mean, there's a difference to me between a TED talk and an art exhibition. 
Yeah, but then what you're talking about is um, simply that, well, A, the product is it's different. It's for a different group of people. And, and, and of course, there's art that's very popular for a lot of people. I, and for I, some I, reason... I don't think I've, so, I've, I've always, But I've always questioned why, like, well, certainly I know, I don't even know if, what t- side you're taking today, but <laughs> I know that if you make art for a lot of people and you think, you know, for the, for the everyday person, not for the millionaire, you're not like that's a pop artist and that's not a bad word and 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 there's mm-hmm. a lot of great pop art that's existed over I yeah I'm changing I've been changing my mind over the years because it seems that the the most popular art is street art mm-hmm. if you look at social media those people are killing it on social media yeah and well bank Banksy was I think declared has, has, in the UK has the most popular work of art in the UK is that yeah. that little girl with the yeah. balloon floating away. and it's so lame it's so corny Mm-hmm. So, because, well, you're, it's and a I, I, I really believe. Like, I always thought art for the people is great, mm-hmm. but then when you see what comes out of art for the people, like, I'm not sure it's so great. I don't know. A lot of people um, like, you know, in music you could make. But a but m- maybe my my argument is that the the most famous contemporary artist or that everybody names is like Jeff Koons or Murakami, that type of mm-hmm. artist, and they are still very small compared to any famous pop star or musician. And so they're, they're like a, a minor, minor, minor pop star compared to, you know what I mean? Like we think of them as, as being very famous, but mm-hmm. it, if you ask, if you walk into the street, ask anybody who's Jeff Koons, they, they, he wouldn't be recognized right. if he goes to a mall in Ohio. There's only one artist that you could name probably, uh, you know, from the last century, or maybe there's, maybe there's two. Like Picasso, yeah, and, and that's fine. Warhol. Yeah, it's actually mm-hmm. great because I think uh, being recognized on the street seems like a horrible thing. So, <laughs> uh, and you know, if you couldn't, you lose a lot of privacy. But you're recognized on the street all the time, like once a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. But but so, so it, um, the point for me was that we're so focused on scale. Also in art, there's this. We got to do the bigger art fair next year. We got to do the bigger exhibition, and oh, mm-hmm. let's make a more ambitious installation. And the opposite yeah, so of that is is an artist like Morandi, who would just make still lives of the same size his entire life, and never thought about like the next one has to be bigger. It, it's a very mm-hmm. very primal, almost like caveman thing. Big, good, yes. Next one, bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a guy. There's a writer in the business world uh, named Bo Burlingham. Uh, He's become a friend of mine because we did an article a while back. But he's like, he wrote a book called Small Giants that's really <clears throat> about companies, not to bring it back to a corporate space, but I wonder if this exists in the art space and if we could talk about a few artists like this. But he talks about companies that choose just creating a high quality product for a few people that's like just really great, you know, like the sandwich shop, you know, that's been in business for 40 years. Yeah, they, it's a great business. Something like that. Yeah, like everyone who goes there is known by name yeah. you love going to I the place I think food is exactly the example where scale makes the product worse that, that mm-hmm. I, for me there's no doubt in my mind that except for the McDonald's example that we love <laughs> yeah <laughs> but for me there's, there's absolutely like I think capitalism definitely made computers better it wouldn't have been possible without mm-hmm. industrialized world but you're right. In food, they, in food, they, I think the taste goes down as soon as scale goes up. There's, there's and no chefs and, and chefs recognize this, and they make this decision explicitly. Right? They'll say like, "No, this restaurant is going to stay small, yeah. and that's why it's going to be and, successful." And that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I've always been obsessed with food, but it's very interesting to me that uh, 
the more local and, and unknown the food is, the more exciting it is. If you travel and as someone tells you about a special bakery that, that it's not franchised, and what's the equivalent to that in contemporary art where you're like, this artist is only known in this small town? But it doesn't work it, that way in art. We, we want the artist to be global and, and well-known and all uh, over the place. We do, but like I would say, like I was just talking to um, someone about. I mean, it, when Chicago you say when you say he's a local or she's a local mm-hmm. artist, that's usually not a compliment. I think well, it's a, yeah. I think you might be right, but it's interesting because I don't think everyone thinks that way. I think if you're in a local scene, like in Toronto, or I was talking to someone yesterday about Chicago, there are these scenes that are nothing like New York, like the you know, where there's no track to becoming Jeff Koons. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. So a lot of people, their their aspirations aren't even to achieve that level, right? Their yeah. aspirations are like to just be the quirkiest drag queen in Toronto. You know, I know people yeah, like, or like an outs- the idea of outsider artists. Yeah, I mean, there's that as well, where it's like in, in an even smaller community, right? I just want to be different from everyone else. Um, yeah, and famous in my local context, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think it should probably be celebrated yeah. more. And I think it, but is, I think though, in food, it's celebrated a lot more than in art. The the idea think, of local. I think that's just because you're in New York. But I would say, like, it's frustrating for me as like someone who's like travels a lot in Toronto. I'll see like there are artists that are super. It's not really frustrating for me, but I'll be like, it's always like, whoa, that's interesting. Where it's like, there's an artist that's super successful, like sells out their shows here, but they've never had a show <laughs> like anywhere outside. Well, I, I know the city, quite right? a few artists from different countries, and often there are language barriers. So that especially France is an example where a lot right. of artists. Uh, France has a program that they have the institutions have to buy 50 or 70 percent French art uh, art made by French yep. artists so what happens is it's the artists build a nice career because the, the institutions have to buy local and they sell to those institutions and they're well known in France but it's really hard then to put energy like uh, let me put it this way you're like in your own country and you're a superstar you're, you're everybody's happy you're always showing in beautiful <coughs> spaces and then all of a sudden you go to Germany or Spain and you have to show in the smallest space and you have to pay for everything so you're not motivated to move out of the country yeah and you could say that's fine but the artists that I know in France that don't really speak English that well didn't travel that much don't have the the uh, network of friends outside of the country they're not happy about that they're, they're not happy about it no. I mean like because and, I met and then maybe that's the a, type of friends yeah. I have but uh, they're like, yeah, I, I know I should learn English better and really behind and I should have traveled more. And they, these are people who are in their 50s or 60s who kind of feel this, if only I had. And I don't think mm. you have that. There's a famous documentary about Jiro, Dreams of Sushi. I don't think he was like, oh, I wish I'd opened a, a shop in Spain. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting things, I think, <clears throat> that we could inspire within the, our community, which is like, if you did something so well locally... Um, in food anyway, it eventually attracts a global audience. There, there is right? a, a really big difference between food and art. And the food, you need it to survive. And that's <laughs> a very big difference. Needs. So if, if you're, yeah, if you're, you don't if need you're the like, best baker, you know people need bread. So they'll come. But if, you, if, you're, if you're making mm-hmm. paintings, and let's say you want to make 30 paintings a year, yeah. and you're only selling in a community of 100,000 people, uh, that's really hard. So... I think that's part of the problem. So you're saying um, because a person, it's it, they'll never say that was a waste of five minutes because at least they'd be like, 
I've at least I've filled my belly. But I, I have seen that happen when it's like a very small dish. People get very self-conscious about portion size and in, mm-hmm. in relative to the expense of a restaurant or yeah. something. Especially in America. It's like well, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in America, you'll have the best barbecue place or the best burger place, mm-hmm. and you, you'll come out very full. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there are artists at a local level who stay local, who create great work, and then someone comes and discovers them. Like, in Toronto, we had Michael Snow, who was, uh, you know, basically... He's his, a video his artist? Not, He's a filmmaker. He made Wavelength, probably one of the most famous films of all time. But, you know, he's... I think I saw lo- an exhibition of his work in Spain. Well, in Wavelength, it's just he invented the kind of the long zoom. So it's like a mm. single shot that go, you know passes through a window. It's very, it's like an hour long long zoom. But um, yeah, you uh, only a few. Years, he's in his nineties now, and, and his work only started getting shown in a major way internationally. I can remember like ten years ago, I went to the Whitney Biennial, and yeah. they're like, "We've discovered Michael Snow," and it was really interesting for me as a Canadian artist because. You know, he's like the like most famous Canadian artist. You know, you, you can't really have a yeah, conversation yeah. Uh, about Canadian art without talking about Michael Snow. And, he, and he's a filmmaker and that yeah, informs yeah. like our, and, and, our obsession and with media. The, there's different ways of arguing that it actually makes for better art when the artist is discovered very late because they're more sheltered and, and uh, uh, commercial decisions are not part of the process. Yeah, so yeah, I think uh, Louise him. Bourgeois is an example who, at the end of her life, said that she was very happy that she was discovered late because she could just mess around by herself and not be bothered by what she's supposed to do. Yeah, so when was Louise Bourgeois discovered, actually? Uh, end of her life, like last ten, five year, or five years. No. I mean, oh, you think just like in the popular consciousness, but I, I definitely, you know, I've never... No, it's because it was very hard for women to break through, so she would be friends with mm-hmm. a lot of famous artists, and she might be in a group show and like have a small work but she was never uh, right her the attention for her work was like one percent of the attention of her peers well it's really interesting yeah but so so it could be a blessing but it's it's very hard when you try to formulate these rules saying like oh it's good to stay small and then no it's good to go big or it's (laughs) it's there's really no clear answer it's something i struggle with myself because a lot of artists that i admire really bite into one single idea and and really grind it out the ho- their whole life but that's very risky is like okay which part of my work do i then decide is is it and i'm just going to work on that for 40 years mm-hmm. usually like uh, someone else tells them what to do right like it's like kind of the twitter thing um but like with the people that we that i respect the most anyway are probably the people that choose to do it their own way However, they however you know. And they w- get would you say those from. people were very diverse in their uh, choice of media and uh, like kind of the model of a very creative artist going all over the place and saying art can be business, art can be performance, art can be social, many different things. Or do you admire well, the same yeah. thing where maybe a performance artist does the same performance his, his or her whole life and just yeah. perfects it? I don't. I don't mind that. I mean, that, uh, but I, I actually would go back to the restaurateur where there's like a. There are a few things that they do, but if they just have one thing on the menu, I don't know. That seems like like I'm not. Didn't really we talk happy about that them. before? You said that if you had advice for a restaurant, it would be just make one thing really good. No, it's like four things. Okay, <laughs> really good. You need people to have a little bit of variety. You gotta have the vegetarian and the fish and the yeah. yeah. Like I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to like a a book as a as a menu. But, but you you definitely. <laughs> There's that one really good falafel place in Berlin. It's very cheap. Um, that's nice. You just know that's the only thing they do. They you can mm-hmm. get it with halloumi and with hummus, but it's still 
you go there for the falafel. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting if we, if we swing back into tech for a second, which is, um, you know, Tesla came out with their, like, car for everyone this week, the Model 3. Yeah. Um, and How much would know, it cost of, for, for regular people per month, like, if we talk about a car for everyone, like... $35,000? Yeah, but if... That would it, be, like... Like, people usually buy a car... I, I don't even have a driver's license. I've never bought a car. But usually people yeah. don't pay f- the full price for a car. They have a payment plan. Yeah, and so, amortized over 15 years. Or yeah, but like what, that, what or does that years? kind of mean for a regular person per month? It means like three or four hundred dollars a month, basically. And that's you, th- is thirty five thousand a normal car budget, or do you think it's still for most people they would have a twenty thousand dollar car? No, I think that's getting pretty close to what um, like a family of two would spend on a car. The double income, no kids, family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the. <laughs> Are you getting one? Uh, no, I'm not gonna. But I did. I so I have I have two old cars that were handed down to me. But um, I know they're, one of them's about to die. Like it's supposed to not even supposed to be passing emissions tests. It's actually terrible for the environment. <laughs> Oops! It's like a nineteen. It's a nineteen ninety three truck. That I have. <laughs> These and are my highlights of the podcast. Whatever we catch, Jeremy. Yeah. yeah but like you it could do a emissions you, test. You could do a calculation whether. The new car, manufacturing the new car, would be worse for the environment, or driving a car that's not so. Yeah, that's the argument I always make. But yeah. um, I think like uh, Fr- frugality wins in the Bailey yeah. household. But about ten years ago, I said I wouldn't buy if the if I was ever to buy a car, I couldn't buy a car until there was an affordable electric car. So it was kind of a monumental. Yeah, uh, this is the mo- this is the available. iPhone moment. Um, but what's interesting about it, I think, as well, is that like you know, you can imagine this is a company that's had trouble scaling up their manufacturing. Has had like one hit product, which was their like Model S car. Yeah, it's a, and, and it's co- a very complicated product to manufacture. A car, yeah, it's yeah. probably the most. But of course, the electric drivetrain was the reason why they were able to vastly simplify the car. And if you look inside the Model Three, it has no controls on the dashboard. It just has like a single yeah, it looks um, funny, yeah? single screen. It, it looks yeah. very new. Like, Mm-hmm. Actually, like this idea that it, it's like it, it totally basically minimal. looks like a test car that they just built the outer shell, and then they have this big monitor to <laughs> test everything. Yeah, and there's no air vents or anything. It seemingly they talked to my father, who is like an, a, a devout minimalist, <laughs> and like they, they took every cue that he's ever wanted in a car or something yeah. like that, which is like fuck the steering know, wheel. The, <laughs> just make it like yeah, make it a cocoon. <laughs> Who of needs wheels? Leather. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, I think it's interesting because they could scale this up and the quality could go way down. You don't know, right? Because it's this is the story that will be told over the next year. But that's what people are anxious about, right? And, and Can so you take why, a good idea? Why are you not buying one as a well, tech I just enthusiast? Thought, uh, because of that very thing. Like I would say, uh, you know, every time a new product comes out, you know, like the way scale affects it is really important, right? Because typically there are compromises when you scale things up. And I think about scale all the time in my or day job, or I did when we were growing quickly as an organization, um, because you start to make decisions differently. You think every time you make a decision, it's really funny. This is a very cliche thing in startups. Um, you'd be like, okay, uh, let's get coffee for everyone in the morning. And then they'll have a conversation and be like, hmm, how will that scale? <laughs> so like, at the end of everything, there's a punchline. Like, how will we scale yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, we should get like higher quality toilet paper. But mm, sometimes like, because that? of scale, products get better. Yeah, that's true because like, you can optimize the Like for example, the, the, the Google search algorithm gets better as more people use it because they know if someone looks at search results and they often click on the third link, they're like, mm-hmm. well, it turns out the third link is probably the most relevant one. So 
the more people use the product, the better it gets. That's true. Uh, anytime you're using like a learning uh, machine, any machine learning environment, that you know, the more it's used, the the higher the quality of the result, probably, right? But uh, it does beg the question, uh, you know, just to swing it like, back, like to, a bespoke search uh, algorithm that's <laughs> hand tailored. It's like, oh, we only do twelve links. That's all the links you can search. Yeah, and then, but I think if we swing the pendulum very quickly back to art, you know, is is like, is there the equivalent? And you know, maybe it's like Jackson Pollock paintings or something where they're created, or or Andy Warhol, if we have to say that, like where there's a lot created really quickly. Thomas Kincaid, uh, Pollock didn't make that many. Thomas King, he didn't. No, I don't. He think should so. have been. No, he was I think all those abstract Pollock. expressionists they, of of their famous works, there's not that many. Like Barnett Newman made like. 60 or 70 paintings overall and you know <clears throat> but I've always heard that the secondary art market requires you to create a certain volume like um, they, they nowadays produce, but that's different that's and different that, from that but you can't be you can't be your your work can't have value to that market unless you've made over a thousand of works of art or something well like that. that's nowadays so that's the Richard Prince Jeff Koons world but I think mm-hmm. uh, the, the Barnett Newman world or the Rothko world they made some prints and editions but their their prime paintings there's not so many Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, that's part of what makes them really valuable now. But it, I think now artists kind of flood the market because there's never been this much money in the art world. There's never been this much attention. It used to be a very obscure activity, mm-hmm. art making. And then because there's such a high demand for all kinds of things, then people also make installations and make lots of books and make lots of prints and make tableware and... and, and make uh, sculptures in large editions and that's but I think still the market will at the end decide these are the 20 masterpieces and the rest is kind Mm -hmm. of merchandising but there's never been fewer I mean more ways to get your art out to people fewer gatekeepers to doing so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and the boundary uh, the the blurring of what is art like if somebody has an interesting Instagram is you could Okay, yeah. that's visual, that's art. Yeah, why not? Well, I was talking to a friend who is a gallerist, and he's like starting an, a new initiative, and um, he was sharing some information with me, which is the, uh, the and this is going to be relieving, I think, to a lot of our listeners if they think like, hey, the gallery model is the only model, but actually, ninety percent of artists don't have uh, gallery representation before the age of thirty-seven. Um, so it's very rare that someone under the age of forty is represented by a gallery, therefore making a living potentially as an artist. And of course, once you're represented by a gallery, most galleries operate on a model that their top two artists in their stable are the only profitable artists. And you know, of course, there are galleries that are the exception to that. And uh, those galleries, of course, are the you know we all know them as <clears throat> very successful. But the lion's share of galleries maybe make art money on one of their artists. And they have, you know, not every year is is profitable. And growth is not what they're seeking. They're trying to just, you know, keep the quality at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I bring it up just because, like, um, we, we're talking about this as being the only model. But actually, that model is, like, uh, the, the, pretty, yeah. There is the tendency that it's hard for a mid-tier gallery. So when you're a very small gallery, your costs are low because you don't have to pretend to be successful and have a, a beautiful space. You can just it can be kind of punk, mm-hmm. and then there's the the mega conglomerates who have all the estates of uh, deceased artists that are very profitable. Yeah. But then the middle area, when you're developing artists and you have to do all the fairs, it's, you have that's a right. lot of costs, but you don't have the estates. So that, that's a, a hard. And I think you're mentioning something that you're mentioning something that most people take for granted, which is that those galleries 
make investments to develop the artist. Like it's not like a purely transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. It's actually there's quite a lot of nurturing that goes on. Yeah. And that's why they but, don't but invest that, in that's artists. again an example where you could decide you start as the small punk gallery in Bushwick with in in a in a garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's like, okay, we did really well. Now we have to do such and such. It's like maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe you can yeah. stay small. Yeah. Well, there's this other example that comes to my mind, which in Hollywood, um, the producer uh, behind Get Out, who's that? What's his name? Um, Now I don't even care if people can hear me typing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's Get Out, produced by Jordan, oh no, not Jordan Peele. Um, Anyway, the producer of Get Out, oh yeah, man, oh yeah, Jason Bloom. Do you know Jason Bloom? No. So he revolutionized Hollywood over the last 10 years. Uh, he's the most profitable producer in Hollywood because he changed the kind of the model. He basically set like a price point, like no movie can cost more than this to make. And then a set of rules for how to meet that expectation. Like famously, he won't approve of any film that has an explosion in it. <laughs> and if there is an explosion, it can't be on screen. It has to be like they allude to the explosion. <clears throat> but he's ruthless for cutting costs. And his point is, you know what, I'm going to place 12 bets or 20 bets and one of those films is going to succeed. And uh, it's That's kind not of a venture su- capital approach. Yeah, yeah, actually it's true. And it's interesting to think about it in relationship with venture capital because we think that it's all about hyper growth. But like I've met venture capitalists that are like, no, just like it's got to be about quality first and foremost and about the customer. Anyway, but he, he would say like, it, I don't even care what the film's about. I'm going to do like, I'm going to spread my wings as far as possible. As long as you hit this... This budget, you know, you don't exceed it because, you know, all the film studios were making these huge films, like they were costing $500 million. And he's like, no, it's going to be 10 million max per film. I'm going to do 20 films a year. If I have, you know, if 10 of those films fail, but only one succeeds, my return on investments will far greater than than the big studios. Yeah. And And, and there is that inflation of scale where there's, you add more spectacle every year. Mm-hmm. And then last year's films that cost two hundred million, you're like, yeah, whatever. Those effects were kind of that's very two months ago. And what I find really exciting about it is it's so hard to when you get to that level of bloat, it becomes so hard to turn that <laughs> ship, you know, to yeah. to steer to yeah, steer yeah. the ship like Microsoft. Yeah, whereas this producer, he can like shift direction. He can follow direct new directions every year and shift, you know, shift perspectives. And so, if you're an artist and you're like over investing in one way of making work, that's not a very, you know, you're you're operating on the big studio model. But this Jason Blue model, I think, is really interesting to consider. Which is like, hey, have like ten different approaches, try them all out. A bunch of them are going to fail, and guess what? That's fine. But if you get one hit, people are only going to remember the hit. Like people remember. Jason Bloom for two films right now, Get Out, and the other one is, um, what's that one with the drummer? It's uh, called like oh, yeah, Whiplash, yeah. Whiplash, yeah. which won an Academy Award, right? But he's made a hundred other films that are like total B-grade movies, but he's made so much money and racked up so many awards for the films that he's already made this way. Yeah, so. it seems there's a similar, maybe that's my point of view as an artist in New York, but it seems there's a similar inflation of scale where every time the show has to get more spectacular the next artist has to one-up the previous artist and uh, it, it's let me let me put it this way it's we were talking about relational aesthetics and waste and those mm-hmm. exhibitions becoming bigger and bigger um, yeah. and maybe they said everything in their first few works that cost nothing but the because of success budget kept being added and opportunities kept yeah. being added and of course you're going to take those opportunities 
but yeah. does that make the work better so that's often my problem with this inflation of ambition or this inflation of scale it's a very superficial thing make it bigger but well, some, so sometimes about the scale the is more spectacular but sometimes it dilutes the idea I don't know there are two heroes in sort of like you know archetypes right there's the the young punk like high energy like breaking the rules trying new things disrupting type of model and then there's the like king or queen of the hill kind of like top down like the biggest possible production at the highest possible value i just think you know my my personal preference i don't know if i favor one or the other but i kind of favor the the you young like the underdog, reckless right? yeah young reckless underdog yeah, yeah. And as soon as they become big, we want to tear them down anyway, right? Like, culturally but speaking. But when I saw the the retrospective of Jeff Koons, so you saw mm-hmm. from the earliest works to the final, the last piece he, he had there was this giant uh, Play-Doh, but oh, made, God, out of, yes, made out yes. of metal. And yeah. I don't know the, if people saw this show, yeah. but that, All that was All the ideas like were in, in, the, in the first few works already. He just found some toys and... Like it was an inflatable flower. He didn't replicate it in metal, which he did later. Mm-hmm. And he just put the inflatable flower on a mirror. Yeah. And basically, all the ideas were there, and they cost maybe twelve bucks to make. And yeah. the big work is maybe twelve million. But there yeah. is something about uh, skill and involving the body and the sense of awe. And uh, mm-hmm. you, you you can't deny that it's a different thing. And uh, yeah, but that's actually a really interesting thing for you to bring up, I think, in relationship to art and art. And, you know, when you're in school, of course, like your professors at some point are like, you know, they introduce the idea of a device and they're like, you know, scale is something you can use to shift the meaning of your work. Right. And and then probably someone like Klaus Oldenburg is mentioned is like, look what happens when you make a paperclip 12 stories high. Um and you're right. Like it shifts your con, it shifts your relationship to the object. Yeah. right? it's kind of um, like the can of worms, where the ready-made was a can of worms. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you can put anything here, and then there's a whole flood of like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And with scale, it's the same thing. It's like, wow, that's amazing. It's a huge paperclip, and then it's just on and on, huge. But yeah, objects. but that's why I think exactly right. It's a can of worms to me. It's a, or a device, and it, if as soon as it becomes overused, it becomes a cliche, right? Um, and so now when I see like. How many, I mean, public artworks have you seen where it's just like, yeah, let's take what I do small and make it big. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, okay. Yeah, congratulations. W- you found yeah. a way to make when your I think small of, thing big. Of big sculptures, I always think Calder did it in a really interesting way. Mm. And where his work from small to big, they're different, but they're all, they feel yeah. very lively and it, it doesn't feel like a waste of material. It doesn't feel like. Richard Serra, I always think, oh, God, he's even bigger pieces still. <laughs> but with the Calder, I'm always happy to see them. Yeah, I also think, like, the earthworks uh, are, an, a, you know, an ambitious use of scale. Like, once you get up to the planetary level. Yeah, when you get to scale. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, we're coming to the near the end. Have we totally explored uh, scale? Is that... That's probably the part people thought we were going to talk about, like big sculptures. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could talk <laughs> about earthworks. It, 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 no, but th- even I think like there's always the contradiction in earthworks that nobody really, very few people experience the scale of it. Mostly mm-hmm. people see them as photographs. So, mm-hmm. And like in big, I mean, not just earthworks, the same thing happened in painting, right? Paintings eventually got to the size of buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, well, they escaped the frame, and but there's, there's always been murals for centuries. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, exactly. So I mean, but is there a, there's a point at which I think it's no longer interesting? Like yeah, I think uh, that's the the boring answer. But whatever skill it is, it has to be done well. It it, it sounds so obvious, but uh, there's no <laughs> there's no rule saying stay small, stay humble, or go large. It's always good to go larger. It's at every scale, it has to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I don't disagree <laughs> with you on that. Yeah, but I, I, that's maybe my only argument is something I struggle with myself is that it is exciting to go bigger because you get an opportunity it's like oh let's make a work that's 12 stories high yeah and it can be a direction that doesn't fit the personality of the artist so you well I can here's what I'll say is there's like all these complications like what I was saying earlier about scaling coffee or you know yeah 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 chocolate chips and your cookies or whatever it is that you're like trying to do a lot of in a startup actually to me as an artist it's probably one of the things I struggle with most now because I just I'm doing a bunch of projects or I've just finished some where I tried to increase the scale and I think I actually failed in that first in the first attempts whereas like the things that I used to rely on the tricks that I had like as soon as other people were involved and this is usually where scale breaks down uh, as soon as there's like someone else that you're relying on to do something you have to like they can't be you and so like if you're building a really big work like I can remember a friend of mine worked on like a solo wit painting that was huge and like the but like they did they used shabby scaffolding and it was like his his life was at risk so he had to quit the job set but you know like there are all these new things yeah. that he introduced that potentially compromise on the quality right and for and you personally like when you have to scale the number of performances yeah like i'm working on a performance right now that's going to take me a year to do um and i've done other ones that have taken me that long and there's just and there's like a lot of complexity but it and often relies on someone else as well so i have to make sure that they're scaling with me and the project and they understand the vision but i don't even know what's going to come from it whereas when i'm working on something really small in my studio i can react in real time right and make a small adjustments but yeah. making small adjustments on a year long plan but for <laughs> example in, in stand-up comedy the more you perform the more often yeah. usually the better it gets but that's a sing. That's is the thing. I think that's a good point for today, which is like that's a single thing iterated, you know, many, many, many Practice times. Practice to perfection. <clears throat> exactly. Whereas one, if a, imagine a stand-up comedy performance that took twelve months to perform, that's like you can't. It, you can only iterate once a year. Yeah. And so yes, you might in you in a hundred years or sir, yeah, like in. 365 years you'd get to the same point as if you performed and, and a small act once yeah, every day I always like these analogies like stepping out of art and then understanding art better but mm-hmm. the comedian is a perfect example where uh, they'll start out small and it, it, it's, it's really fun being the first crowd that discovers the, the comedian but the, the comedian is rising very fast and then moves to LA and starts mm-hmm. doing TV shows and starts doing movies and the movies get bigger, but they're kind of diluted. They're not as raw. Mm-hmm. And they don't have time to do their stand-up anymore, so they have to hire other writers to build right. their show. And the, yeah. you, you often lose something. You can something. tell. Yeah. But the other like argument everyone. is, if they had stayed in the small clubs, maybe they wouldn't have stayed fresh either. So mm-hmm. Something else would have come up. Yeah, so to be a purist and say, like, no, I'll only do stand-up, and then... <laughs> yeah. Like, like Eddie, Murf- Eddie Murphy is an example. Oh. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to him, but uh, well, he, apparently I think his work, the edges of his work, w- w- it really got diluted because of going mainstream. 
I'm pretty sure he said publicly, you know, he had kids and things changed. Okay. You know, he couldn't be like the potty mouth. You know, he was known yeah. for he was known for just being this outrageous, dirty comedian and then he had children and a family and he's like, I don't like myself. And, yeah, and, and then he became I'm ashamed of myself. Doctor Doolittle. <laughs> exactly. Which by the way, I don't know why he chose Doctor Doolittle, which is the biggest financial flop in the history of Hollywood in the nineteen fifties. No, but Do what you know I that? In, it was the most expensive expensive film ever made during that era. In the fifties. Yeah, because basically they, a friend was telling me about this, like they, you know, it's these animals come to life, whatever, and talk and stuff. And they, they like, they did, they trained all these animals in the 50s, like to perform and like humans and stuff. I never saw the 50s and, version. But. And then they, and then they decided that they, they did this in America, the training of the animals. And then they decided to film, do the film in Europe. I don't know why. And they couldn't get the animals because of some kind of like vaccination policies or something oh, like man. import export of animals so that they, they couldn't get the animals to Europe for shooting and so they had to retrain all the animals <laughs> again in Europe <laughs> like a whole new set of but animals but the, the anyway. Eddie Murphy version was pretty successful was it? I don't know. yeah I guess it was kind of uh, but he, he well, his first few movies were uh, there was a lot of cussing and it was a bit more mm. edgy uh, anyway yeah. uh, I don't know if we've gotten to a good point today should we um i think getting together is already a good point yeah yeah well one good thing that happened this week (laughs) not necessarily a point was that we we asked for listeners to send in oh yeah their recordings and we were we're flooded flooded yeah Yeah. flooded by our terms which is like we received like a half a dozen uh great field recordings um and then we were trying to decide which one we should play first and we thought well the first one that came in is as good as any right um, no, and so, that was that uh, was what you said, and then I picked my favorite. Oh, really? <laughs> Didn't <laughs> yeah. Madeline? I think Madeline sent hers in first. Though. Okay, but I just listened to the bunch, and I thought that one. I thought you wanted to be very democratic <laughs> and fair, and just say, "Let's pick the first one that came yeah. in, and we'll process and like, them that way." And I'm like, "No, I like this one the most." <laughs> it's true. Are Raphael you are you a, just as? Uh, do you do the same thing at work where like? Uh, they propose a new feature and it's like whoever brought in the first feature that's what we'll do <laughs> I don't know like they'll, no, they'll ask Google about like why do we have two search boxes now on the engine well the intern suggested it and the, the intern was the newest employee so that's what we're doing well I'll just admit I don't know what I'm doing on this podcast and so until I'm an expert I'm not going to have an expert opinion okay. so in this particular case um Madeline uh, Zappala sent the, uh, in. Uh, she's a faithful Good Point listener, she says. And it's a field recording from uh, the Gunnar Schunbeck exhibition at Mass Mocha. Have you ever been to Mass Mocha, Raphael? Yeah, I went especially to see the Solowit retrospective, which will be up for a decade or something, or even longer. So they, it, they ma- have three ma- floors of his murals. Oh, really? And yeah. But Mass Mocha is also the largest, has the largest single gallery space in America. If not, I don't think it's in the world, but... Uh, their main hall is the it's largest pretty exhibition big, space. Yeah. Like they once built talk uh, about like scale. a whole. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Talk about scale. They once built like yeah, a it's whole section. It's hard to section. do an exhibition of Polaroids in that space. Yeah, there was famously a whole section of Baghdad that they built. I can't remember the artist who built it in, inside <laughs> that gallery. Anyway, uh, it's an insane scale. If you ever get a chance to go, uh, I think you can fit all Massimo. of Tokyo in that space. Yeah, it's upstate Massachusetts. Check it out, mm-hmm. United States. Um, and so this is a recording uh, of uh, a room. Experimental so, instruments? Yeah, so there's a soundproof room in the museum dedicated to instruments that uh, Schoenbeck made out of unusual materials. Um, and what you're going to hear is a number of visitors in the room kind of experimenting and testing out these instruments. 
uh, made from pipes, cans, boxes, sticks, and rubber balls, and stuff. It's quite it's quite pleasing actually, and it's like uh, cacophony. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So Madeline, thank you for sending that. And Madeline also said she she's been trying to get. Another recording of a fisher cat screaming, uh, and I didn't know what a fisher cat was, so I looked it up. It's a terrifying creature. So I'm looking forward, <laughs> Madeline, to uh, you eventually ca- Hope you catching, this, <laughs> yeah, catching the screen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first Being good captured. point casualty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't put your, yourself at risk to get. We're these not recordings. liable. We're not responsible. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for sending this in, um, and uh, continue to send them in. Just because yeah. we have uh, it's, a few it's awesome to mean. hear them all. Yeah, uh, and maybe we could even do two one one episode. We could just yeah. take a little break. Um, so thanks, Madeline. Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, continue to send in your recordings and your ads. Someone sent in an ad, but it's like recorded. I, did I tell you that? No, oh, no, I didn't. We, we only want your ads in script form, so that Raphael and I can read them poorly, just like on every other hit podcast. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks so much. Have a great Thank week. Thank you, everyone. everybody. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.